Okay, we're going to have our Bible reading now. So if you've got a Bible, do please um, grab it. We're going to have a couple of readings uh, this morning. Now, often um, at Grace Church, we tend to have sermon series that go through biblical books um, or sections of books bit by bit. Over the summer period, we're having a series in the fruits of the Spirit. So we're looking at some of the fruits of the Spirit um, in more detail. And we're going to be looking in the topic, at the topic of patience this morning, patience. So there are a couple of readings. The first is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Our second reading is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. So that's uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 to 44. Then he, that's Jesus, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? 
he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Well, hello, I'm Dave and I'm excited to look with you all at today's topic of patience. Now, because it's August, people have been away at various points this month and I want to make sure that everyone's in the loop. We're at the end of a sermon series looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and you can see it there on the screen, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, often translated patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we've had three sermons already looking in detail at love, at joy, and at peace. And today, for the fourth and final sermon, we're going to focus on patience. And at this point, let's stop and ask, why? Why are we looking at patience separately? We've looked at love, joy, and peace already. Isn't that enough? Let's think for a moment. Why has God given us a longer list? What more will we gain exactly? Here's what I mean. If you love someone, surely that must include being patient with them, right? And surely biblical joy, which goes beyond temporary happiness of circumstance, requires patience. Or again, if you want to pursue peace in any relationship, church, home, at work, at school, anywhere, you'll sometimes need to be patient with others. So haven't we covered patience already? And here's a bigger problem. The Bible itself says that some commands cover everything. So when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command in the whole of the Old Testament? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, love covers everything, right? Well, yes, love does cover everything if it's real biblical love. And what is that? We need more info, don't we? And God knows us, and so does Paul, knows what we're really like, and that we benefit from detail and from examples Love your neighbour as yourself, yes, great summary of the entire law, but in what ways does that work out? When might I find it difficult to love my neighbour? How do I love my neighbour, especially when my inclination is to love myself? How do I combat the temptation to twist the law of love and and say, yeah, I'm loving my neighbour as myself, but I'm not really, I'm just turning it to my advantage? What ways do I love my neighbour that I'm not even aware of? Who is my neighbour? And that's the follow-up question in Luke's Gospel. 
which in turn gives us the story of the Good Samaritan. And how valuable is that challenge, the, the challenge to our definition of who is my neighbour? So having these fuller lists of Christian character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's so helpful for us. So it really is worth taking some time to look and focus on at patience. So if we could have the next uh, slide, please. Here's the first of three points. What is it? What exactly is patience? You'll already have noticed that the various translations say forbearance or patience or perhaps something else. So I want to be as clear and as careful as I can. And after some prayerful reflection, here's my best attempt at a biblical definition. Patience is a disciplined, contented, hopeful approach to all of life flowing from trust that God's purpose in the who, what, how, where, and when of all life events is always the good of his children. It's quite long, so if you're taking notes, it's going to stay up on screen for a while. Don't worry. Now, was that the definition that you were expecting? I reckon when we say patience, we mostly think about time and that we have to wait for something, and that's fair. But I think both in our experience and biblically, there's more going on. For example, let's quickly take the who, what, how, where, when part of the definition. After I finished my university studies, it wasn't long afterwards that I successfully applied for a university music job. But it was in Birmingham. So it wasn't really when the job came up that I had to be patient about. It was where the job was. I really wanted to be in Manchester, but at least for those four years, I had to be patient about where God wanted me to be. So this definition has partly come from me reflecting on the kinds of situations in my own life and uh, thinking what required patience and trying to put that into words. A second source of the definition, which you can see on the bottom of the slide there, is The Fruitful Life by Jerry Bridges. And if you want to follow up, chapter seven in that book covers patience. And Jerry Bridges presents five facets, five aspects of biblical patience, which cover a huge range of situations. So perhaps you're being bullied at school or you're being persecuted for being a Christian and you suffer for a long time. So you suffer long, so long suffering is the first one, and that's the literal translation of patience in Galatians 5. Or perhaps um, you're a manager at work and someone is continuously undermining you and just provoking you. Can you be slow to anger? That's the second one. Or perhaps you have an annoying habit and it gets on people's nerves. Can others tolerate your faults and your failings? That's the third one. Maybe you've been praying for something and you've prayed for a year and that becomes two and then it's five and then it's ten years, maybe twenty. Are you willing to wait for God's timetable? So willing to wait is the fourth one. And finally, maybe there are some kind of adverse circumstances. Maybe there's financial trouble or maybe you're having real difficulty because you're changing school. 
Can you persevere and endure through those difficult circumstances? So that's a quick summary of what um, Jerry Bridges, chapter seven, talks about. And many of you, you know me quite well, you know I would love to do a much more exhaustive explanation than that and explore every single word of that definition. But there isn't time. And more importantly, it seemed right to focus on specific areas that I felt God was putting on my heart as I was preparing this sermon. So I've limited the types of patients we'll look at. And moving to point two now, I also want to anchor our definition in the Bible. So if we could have the next slide, please. Where can we find examples of patience in the Bible? Well, from hundreds of great examples, I've selected two patience heroes to help us explore what patience looks like in practice. No surprises that our first patience hero is... Right, Jesus. Now, there are ways that we can't copy Jesus. For example, only Jesus is the Messiah. But if we look carefully at Jesus' life, there are things that we can follow, including examples of patience. Let's look in detail at a small extract from chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, which was read earlier. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed, arrested, condemned, crucified, and he's praying in anguish in the midnight hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. There's so much to learn from Jesus here. For example, do you ever feel like no one is around to help? What about the workplace or school? You're under pressure or other people don't pull their weight or well-intentioned efforts backfire and create more to do or there's just so much to do on the church rotor, at home, for a family member, for coursework, for the car, for the future. It's overwhelming and on top of it all, you've helped others but no one's there when you're struggling. How can we respond patiently in those kinds of situations? How can we express the kind of patience which tolerates the failings of others? Well, here we see Jesus asking for support. His darkest hour is approaching and he asks for the disciples to support him in prayer. And he's even taught them how to pray. Remember, our Father who art in heaven, but they don't understand how important this is, or they've just had a big meal and they're sleepy, or it's late and do we really have to pray right now? Whatever it is, no one prays with Jesus in his hour of need after he has done so much for the disciples. Does that sound familiar? What can we learn about the aspect of patience which tolerates the failings of others from Jesus's response? 
Now, here's what God seemed to be putting on my heart as I reflected on this. Jesus doesn't say nothing. Yes, of course, there's a place sometimes for quietly enduring difficulty, and you just have to soak it up and say nothing. But I wonder, is there something deeper that we need to address here? I wonder if sometimes keep calm and carry on may outwardly look like godly endurance, but actually what's going on inside is quiet impatience. Quiet impatience. Does this inner monologue sound familiar? I can't be bothered to have a long conversation about this right now. I won't be listened to anyway, so I'll just leave it and say nothing. Actually, from past experience, there's no point trying to get this person to do this the right way. They're not interested, so neither am I. I'll just do it and I'll get it done right and they don't need to know. Why have they said that? Don't they know that's a social faux pas? But they're an awkward person and it'll be awkward for me to take this up with them because they won't get it and they'll just respond really weirdly and make more social blunders and my effort to help will be pointless. So on balance, I'll say nothing and just let the social group continue to shun them. Maybe that's the best way for them to learn. Do you see how quietness does not always equal tolerance. It can be the complete opposite. Explaining things takes time. Working out how to talk to each other, how to work together, live together, have leisure time together, do church together, support each other in tough times with all our competing desires and all our differing good intentions, this all takes patience. Is the other person even aware of the issue? Are you? It may take real care not to embarrass the other person while soaking up some embarrassment yourself. Investing time explaining your point of view could expose you to counter-arguments and whoever you're annoyed with may highlight something you need to change. So real patience does not cannot shy away from engagement with people who annoy us. Rather, real tolerance may require sincere engagement. Sincere engagement with people who annoy us. You may need to work out why an irritating habit causes you to react so strongly. You may need to carefully reflect on how best to express what you want to say. You may need to do some self-examination. Is there a genuine need for a conversation or are you trying to force your will on the other person? Do you have the same fault yourself? Is fear or quiet impatience getting in the way of sincere engagement? Do you forget that God patiently bears with your failings every hour of every day And as a result, is your conversation shaped by how good God is or how right you are? Who's God in that scenario? And if you really want to be God-like, doesn't God patiently bear with our failings? If someone needed to address an issue with you, 
how would you like them to do it? Surely sincere engagement would have your best interests at heart. Look how Jesus sincerely engages with the disciples here. He's honest that this hurts. Could you not pray with me one hour? Isn't it amazing how vulnerable that is? That the Son of God would expose his sorrows, his desire for support like that. There's no hard exterior, oh, I'm tough, nothing phases me. I'm not going to show any weakness in this conversation. And look how the rebuke is softened. Even though the disciples fail to support him, Jesus acknowledges that they mean well. The spirit is willing. Do we give concessions like that? Or do people's faults have to be like 100% completely awful to justify our impatience with them? And look at the call to prayer. This late night prayer in these few verses in Matthew, this is not a one-off for Jesus. He's always praying. He isn't asking the disciples to do something he doesn't do. No, he's asking them to join him in something valuable. The disciples are really missing out on something here. Patient prayer with fellow believers in their hour of need is so important for love and unity among Christians. Patient prayer is one of the clearest ways that any Christian can express their dependence on God. Patient prayer protects from temptation. See what they're missing. And let's think about Jesus's patient prayer for a moment. Jesus patiently prays for something to which God's answer is no. There's something so valuable for us to grasp here. Patient prayer to which God ultimately answers no is not a waste of time. I'll say that again. Patient prayer to which God ultimately answers no is not a waste of time. What's our thought process if we pray for something and after repeated, repeated, repeated prayer, God's answer is no? Is that kind of prayer worth the time? Yes, Jesus does it. And he even hints that the answer is probably no. And uh, I'm talking beyond the theology of, well, he's the son of God and he knows the scriptures and he must have known that God, I'm not talking about that. You can see in the words of his prayer, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So why keep praying if you suspect or it actually turns out that God's answer is no? Let's think about it. Persistent, patient prayer, even when God says no, develops our commitment to and dependence on God's answer. In fact, especially when God says no. How else can we learn to value God's answer if we always get our answer? Persistent, patient prayer trains us to honestly communicate and then submit our deepest longings to God. This is a thing that I most want and desire in the whole world, but it's not a better plan than yours, Father, and it's not more worth having than you. 
How else can we learn that God's deepest desires are more glorious than our desires unless God says no to some of our desires? You see, this is why I defined patience like that. Patience is a disciplined, contented, hopeful approach to all of life, flowing from trust that God's purpose in the who, what, how, where, and when of all life events is always the good of his children. Yes, it is worth persistently, patiently praying, even when God ultimately says no, because the no is a yes to something more glorious, not something cosmically more glorious, technically more glorious, salvifically more glorious, no, more glorious for you. Now, I wonder if some of us are thinking, that is a high calling. You know, maybe Jesus, son of God, can do all that, but I'm just not that heroic. I haven't saved the world. I haven't lived a perfect life. I'm not the Messiah. Can we have the next slide, please? So let's look at our other patience hero, and it's Hannah. And if you're saying, where is she again in the Bible? That's kind of the point, really. Hannah is rather less famous than her son Samuel, who has two quite big books of the Old Testament named after him. But we're looking very deliberately at Hannah because she's an absolute hero of patience who isn't that famous, doesn't have books named after her, and initially seems to basically be just this nobody who's a victim of just crushing circumstances. And it's so bad, it's almost like, why, why are we looking at this character? I wonder if you got the sense of, of that as um, it was read earlier. If you've ever felt undervalued, maliciously provoked, misunderstood, and like God is just saying no to every prayer, I wonder if you can identify with Hannah. There was a certain man from Ramathame a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? It's just awful, isn't it? Hannah's one of two wives, so best case scenario, her husband's attention is divided. Well, it would be if Hannah was of equal status, but she isn't, because in those days, a woman with no kids equals a woman with low status. 
And you can see how that plays out in verse 4. Peninnah, fruitful wife, her side gets loads of portions. Hannah, sympathy portion. And the end of verse 5 is just devastating, isn't it? The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And then to top it all, Peninnah, the fruitful wife, year after year, at home, and even in the house of God, just twists the knife about this fertility issue. Maybe taunting, snide remarks, power plays, social slubs. It's just malicious, isn't it? To go after someone like that until they can't even eat for grief, even in the house of God. And the husband, I I don't know, maybe this is well-meaning or maybe I'm reading into it, but asking why? Why are you so distressed? Seriously? To me, that seems to colour the phrase, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I I wonder if a modern version might be, is it because I'm not enough for you as a husband? So, why is this in the Bible? Why are we looking at this? Just whitewash it out, right? No. What this does is it connects with us in our awful situations. And also, that darkness just makes Hannah's response shine forth, like brighter than the sun. It's just amazing. Look at this response. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the Lord God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, look at the respect. Hannah's respect for others. If you read on the narrative, in the narrative, Eli really isn't a great priest. And he totally misjudges this situation, harshly condemning and accusing Hannah on top of everything she's already suffered of being drunk when she's pouring her heart out to the Lord. But there's no impulsive lashing out. How dare you accuse me, Eli? 
Or, isn't it obvious I'm praying? I have been here before, you know. No, she keeps calling Eli, my Lord, and herself, your servant. Do you see, Hannah's respectful, measured, honest, open response is patient. She takes time to explain and adds no insults. Her years of distress haven't made her bitter in every response. No, Hannah is so deeply anchored in God, even in her distress, that her approach is, here's another human being created in the image of God. They're therefore automatically worthy of dignity and respect, and therefore it's worth taking the time to engage and explain. In fact, the only way my words could ever be an insult to another human being is if they hate my very dependence on or praise of God. There's something so beautiful about her attitude, like it just shines out of her. So when we speak to people, whatever the circumstance, is it clear from how we speak that we consider them valuably created in God's image? Are they worth our time? And look at the hope, Hannah's hope. Eli is a priest of God Most High. Whether he's a good priest or not, he's God's sovereignly instituted priest at that time. So if he confers blessing on Hannah, verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him, then Hannah's attitude is, God is able to use any imperfect situation and any imperfect person to confer a blessing. So the blessing is coming, it's just a matter of time. And you can see that's what she believes because when does she stop weeping? It's after verse 17. Now let's compare that with our situation. We have not just any priest, but Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus isn't flawed, but perfect. And Jesus's promises are so much greater How about this one from John 11? Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Could we have the next slide, please? Jesus's promises are so good that not even death will be an obstacle to us receiving them. It's just a matter of time. And all we have to do is wait patiently for it. And promises that are that good, when we really grasp them and really invest in them, mean we can be patient and take a disciplined, contented, hopeful approach to all of life. Because we know that God's purpose in the who, what, how, where and when of all life events is always the good of his children. So... As the um, musicians come up, here's a follow-up resource. I put together a table to help us think through what happens if we do or don't exercise the five types of patience we saw earlier. Um, I've got that on PDF, so I'm happy to um, uh, email that out, or I see some people are already taking a photo of it. That's fine, it's not like copyrighted or something. Um, 
It can be your homework, I suppose, if you like to think through at home, or um, life group leaders, it might be useful for you to follow up the topic um, midweek. Uh, it might be a useful resource. So let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you so much that you are patient with us. You bear with us every day, and you even make your sun to rise on the good and the wicked. How good a God you are, and how beautiful your patience is. Please, would we be beautiful like you? Would patience just shine out of us, whatever our situation? For your glory, for our good, for our unity as a church, for our witness to a watching world who needs so much to see that you are good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.